0: Heads up that the Future Fossils Book Club stays down under with Australian science fiction author Greg Egan. His 1995 novel Distress will be our next destination on this tour, March 14th, Sunday. All Patreon supporters are invited and we'll have a build-up and decompression in the Future Fossils Discord server for that book as well. I prefer doing it this way with the combination of asynchronous and synchronous communication. So... Greetings, Future Fossils. Welcome to yet another experimental episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. Recently, I asked my Facebook friends whether people thought it was a good or bad idea to start an advice column. Thinking about all of the consultation that people have been coming to me with lately, I'm going to put out some of these recordings for Patreon supporters, but, you know, I've had a number of friends working on various projects solicit my uh, input, and I, I figured, well, hey, I'm happy to give it to you for free as long as you don't mind me recording it and sharing with people the conversations that we have. And that led very naturally to the idea of just hosting an open AMA format kind of call for Commentary, and you know see what kinds of questions people wanted me answering, so you know this isn't coming from a place of me assuming that I know better than anyone else, but you know each of us have unique life experience, and my life has been especially nonlinear and odd, I think, <laughs> growing up in uh, amusement parks as the son of a travel executive and Then, you know, doing dinosaur field work and then, you know, working festivals full time and dipping in and out of the academic world. So I'm not sure that my perspective is more valuable than anyone else's. I'm sure it's not. There's a lot of things that I am completely clueless about, but I'd like to think that I stand on a unique peninsula You know, I mean, really, my entire adult life has been governed by the heuristic that if a thousand people are standing in line behind me waiting to do the same thing I'm trying to do, then I should just step out of line, give my place to someone else and go look for a kiosk where no one else is standing in line to seek out a truly unique experience. We've reflected on this kind of thing before on the show I had Steve Brussati, the paleontologist, who ended up working with the same advisor that I would have had I stayed on that path back in episode 70, 2018. And then, of course, you know, the Tea Fairy has been on the show a number of times, and uh, she's got this whole theory about life being a video game and that we're in it to have the most unique and interesting rock star hero experiences we can so, you know, there's some information theory to that. You know, uh, researcher Jacques Vallée has this this notion about a retrocausation and entropy. And we discussed that with Eric Wargo in episode 117 about how it seems like the mind is able to attune itself to future events that are especially interesting. The pre-cognitive literature is all about high entropy things like car crashes or, or plane wrecks or meeting the person that you're going to have kids with, you know, evolutionary reward. So it does seem like there may be uh, within our lives a, a kind of paradigm shift that understands the landscape of time as one in which currents run into eventualities of the greatest curiosity if you will you know that the, the universe is tuned in such a way that the trend is towards more and more interesting events and so you know with all of that in mind i feel like i'm really working hard to be an antenna for the weird and that makes me a useful if not unique lens through which someone can ask a sober or totally inane ridiculous question and get a surprising answer and that's my hope for this little special episode i want to start with a i i don't know should i start with the serious or the silly questions i'm gonna go with this one from 8-2 spelled out on twitter how do i know if aliens would like my music? I said, well, you know, this is a perfect question. I'll, I'll be in touch after talking to the aliens. 8-2 responded, humans don't seem to be responding to my work, so the obvious conclusion is that aliens may actually be my target audience. Wow. I really sympathize with this, because, you know, the Future Fossils podcast was premised, was founded on the idea that nobody's actually listening right now, but that maybe one day somebody will. You know, that... If this is trash today, then it's still interesting uh, from an archaeological perspective in another, say, hundred years. It's, you know, I think a lot of artists relate to this. I think, uh, you know, uh, those of us who, as I was just talking about, have, have cut our own path through life. Who, in uh, the words of you know SFI president David Krakauer, he talks about the artist as someone who's trying to take a universal truth and render it into a truly singular and incompressible expression. Uh, it's like a current cutting across the the opposite of of science, which is you know looking at all of these unique, seemingly disparate phenomena and trying to abstract them into generalized universals. Uh, You know, the artists, by their nature, are marginal beings. They're out on the edges exploring. You know, I I have to admit that, uh, although it's been years, this was certainly the character that I discovered in myself through group psychedelic experiences, that, you know, I was always the first to get up and go wander and explore and report back, you know, that there's the human social molecule has a kind of structure to it where, you know, people who are more interested in community and and culture at street level, human affairs are kind of the bones of a thing. And, And then the, the artists are maybe the skin and engineers are the muscle, you know? So it's all about the relationship between context, specificity and universal truth and, And, you know, as you, as you get out, you get, you get more and more sensitive in a way, sadly, tragically, you know, more and more expendable. But of course, on the whole, your skin is extremely important, right? Uh, You can't just go without skin and nor can the society go without artists. So, you know, how would aliens, how would I know if aliens would like my music? Well, you don't, you know, but I mean, it's it's really ultimately the same question about anybody else. You know, it's, it's, it's a fundamental philosophical question about qualia, about the nature of experience. You know, what is it like to be a bat? Is my red the same as your red? I've listened to the same song one year and then the next year, and it was a completely different song, you know, because you have changed. It's a very Heraclidian in that regard. You know, you now are, in some sense, an alien to the the person who wrote the song. So if you want to know if aliens will like your music, I, I mean, the control is really, do you like your music, I guess, because you are an alien compared to whoever you were when you wrote that particular piece. I, I rewatched the 1991 Steven Spielberg film Hook recently, and wow let me tell you what a tesseract it is to reflect on a film about the anamnesis the remembering of that lost childhood from the position of a father and uh a, you know someone who is like shackled in the world of business this is Unbelievably true. People listening to this podcast have seen me go through this transformation from you know scrappy wilderness artist to desk worker and head of household. And so, watching this show recently, I was kind of like a a psychodynamic adventure. I realized that you know Spielberg, who himself is regarded as kind of the golden child, you know the the puer eternus of Hollywood to call back to the conversation I recently had on the show with Michael Phillip about play and creativity and how one must be like a child to enter the kingdom of heaven. There was something so healing and restorative about watching Robin Williams perform this for us vicariously. And I, I think that, you know, that speaks to a really important function of cinema. You know, when my friends and I recently, uh, last year, came together to rewatch 2001, which of course takes you from the advent of the or you know, the origin of modern human consciousness through into the technological era. And then beyond into the, you know, the post-human cosmic, uh, you know, angelic identity that there's this, a clear arc being traced through these points and, this is, I think, one of the, the reasons for this film's success is that it gave us, in the modern era, in this disenchanted age, a handle, an affordance, a way to grasp the kind of uh, cosmology and identify our place in it. This function used to be fulfilled by architecture, you know, that the the uh, pyramid complexes and so on were you know, African villages were all these fractal microcosms of the world as they understood it. And that by building the human world as a scale model of the cosmos, that we were aligning ourselves with the, the needs and the the processes and the dynamics of these greater elemental forces and so on, agencies that to which we owe our, our very existence. And I think something like that is going on for us as moderns in the cinema, that you know we we use this as a way of extending into uh, empathizing, becoming the characters in these stories in a, a kind of collective dream. This is why film is so powerful. And many people have written a lot about uh, predictive programming and and the way that this is well understood by Hollywood. And so this is why so much money pours into Hollywood. You know, it's 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 a way of tuning the collective consciousness of our species. And that's where it gets really interesting as far as international trade wars are concerned and the rift between the Western and the Eastern mind and the way that China censors American movies and also shapes through financial power the content of american films it's bizarre if you don't know what i'm talking about actually south park has done a, a remarkable job of satirizing this on that show but at any rate so you know here we are in this vast roiling evolutionary situation and it's that lens that i use to answer your question how do i know if aliens would like my music uh, I, think, I think it's safe to say that if, if you like your music <laughs> and there are aliens, then yeah, probably there are some aliens out there that will like your music. There's another angle, of course, which is the question of agnostic biosignatures, which is that we don't even really know what aliens are. We don't know what alien life looks like. Uh it's it's one of these self defeating, self defining things. It's a, by very definition, it's unfamiliar. So you have nothing to compare it to. You have nothing to base it on. You know, when we're looking for life in space, how do we know? And in 1999, uh, one of one of the most interesting papers I think I've ever seen was uh, about the physical limits of communication. I've brought this up on the show before. This was a, a, a paper, uh, Chris Moore, Michael Lockman and a few other people at the Santa Fe Institute wrote saying that basically black body radiation is indistinguishable from optimally encoded communication between superintelligences. So, to Edward Snowden's point that perhaps we don't see aliens because they're simply using better encryption than we are and all of their uh, radio banter looks to us like just cosmic noise. I mean, that's what the math suggests. So, you know, when you ask, how would I know if an alien likes my music? Again, we're sort of chasing our own tail here. You know, adjacent to that question is the question of, like, do your parents even recognize the music you listen to as music? Historian William Rowan Thompson, as I am fond of, reminding people on this show says that evil is the enunciation of the next level of order. And that it's, again, it's just this matter of, you know, data coming in that doesn't match the training data that seems like noise because you haven't learned to recognize a pattern in it. You know, it takes time to develop an appreciation for jazz. It takes time to develop an appreciation for Any music, really, which is why when you look over the last thousand years of Western composition, you see a gradually increasing complexity in the music itself because people are becoming habituated to new harmonic structures and we we get acclimated to it and then we can build upon that. And it's an island of the known an ocean of the what Stuart Kaufman would call the adjacent possible. We discussed this in episode 125. So the same thing is going on with film, actually. Also, incidentally, uh, much has been written about this. The jump cut films have developed a visual lexicon. And people understand that when you see someone getting out of the car closing the door and then you see them closing the door to the house that they walked out of the car and walked up the driveway and up the sidewalk and knocked the door. And we don't need to show all of that anymore, but like the oldest films were skeuomorphically approximating theater and had to go through all of those motions. And so we're seeing again, this ongoing process of compression where the context and the meaning is implicit. It's outboard. It's not contained in the media anymore because it's, it's contained in our cultural programming. And so we, in a weird way are aliens to ourselves. You know, that if we were to show a movie from the 21st century to somebody at the, in, at the turn of the 20th century, it would probably put that person in the hospital because as the, uh, you know, the records keep the screening audience for King Kong, there was originally a scene in, in the, the old black and white King Kong where they had these giant insects and people got so upset viscerally upset by these uh, stop motion animation insects that they were throwing up. They were running, screaming out of the theater. And so when Peter Jackson did his like immense three hour faithful re-adaptation of King Kong with CG, he brought that back in and we were able to handle it because we had been essentially inoculated by this, semiotic evolutionary arms race, if you will. And so I guess in that sense, that gives us a lever where we can say, you know, if an alien race was vastly more advanced than ours, then your music might seem like the music of ancient Greece or something, foreign, familiar, but alluring, exotic. Or it it might seem like the the music of indigenous peoples But statistically speaking, right, most alien life probably starts out rather simple, and so the music of any kind is just going to be noise to them, uh, in the same way that an ant is unaware of the, the meaning of the words in the book that it's walking on, you know? So, well, anyway... That's my two cents on <laughs> how do I know if aliens would like my music. Uh, check the show notes. I'll make sure to link to 8 music and you aliens listening to this can decide for yourselves whether you like what they do or not. All right. Next question comes from Sean Applegate Swanson of the uh, Complexity Weekend community. I'll link to their cool complex systems hackathon in the show notes future fossils did a live episode with them last year at their event and i i I did a musical performance as well and uh, i'll link to those and we're going to be doing another one this may so i mean i would recommend tuning into them but that's all beside the point sean asks my five-year-old son is asking about death a lot lately How should I share with him that everything dies, including his grandparents, his parents, his sister, our pet bunny, etc. Death provides meaning to our time together by making it finite, but it is also an inherently tragic aspect of our existence. How can a five-year-old reconcile this? What is the best way to encourage him to embrace and then let go of his emotions around this knowledge, such as sadness, fear, awe, humility, etc.? Whoa, you know, hey... (laughs) You're really just sort of lobbing them to me there, buddy. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's not a slow pitch. But I, I do think I have uh, a suggestion. So actually, one of my oldest friends, uh, Nathan Burnsprung, whom I met in high school and with whom I would race to finish our algebra assignments in class so that we could go hide in the back of the class and play Magic the Gathering uh, freshman year of high school, Nathan just hit me with an excerpt from a New York Times article, which I will post in the show notes, about horrible children's toys. And uh, one of them, number three on this list from, uh, of 10, from, from best to worst, so the third worst toy for children, according to the New York Times, are uh, Ant Farms. The author, Jessica Delfino, says here, Depressing. You might consider getting your child an ant farm until you hear a cautionary tale from Amanda Wallace, a mom of two in San Diego. I thought it'd be fun to watch their little society build. She said. Instead, it became a daily reminder of the Sisyphean futility of life as they slowly buried their dead until there was one ant left wandering a horrorscape alone, wishing for the sweet embrace of death to take her too hard pass <laughs> Well, you know, actually I think there is something redeeming in that. I, you know, I mean, lessons in mortality don't usually come so cheap. I say yes to ant farms because the fact is, you know, we we live in a world that is increasingly urbanized. This is going to be a kind of a complex systems answer also, I guess. You know, we live in a world where More than half of the human population has moved into metropolitan areas. In a way, the dominant life form on the planet now is not the human being, but the city. And so, really does seem like an ant farm might actually be a useful instrument for helping a kid gain some perspective on the reality of the human condition, especially the human condition in the the 21st century. And even more so, especially when we can't get in planes so easily and see our own human footprint the way that we would look at an ant farm at at a distance, you know, see all of the tiny cars moving around and those tiny little streets so far below. I mean, I don't know exactly how my parents did this with me, but... I can safely say that as somebody who was fascinated with things that had been dead for millions and millions of years for my entire life and still am that anchoring my existence in deep time and in the grand succession of evolutionary epochs has been really helpful for me in terms of grappling with my mortality and with the end of even larger things like civilization and so on kevin Walmott, a friend and listener did episode 116 he he read ugo Bardi and john michael greer essays uh, both of whom wrote essays called the next 10 billion years and i really find that kind of powers of 10 zoom out to be immensely useful in coming to terms with the ongoing flux, the the multi-scale transformation that is every singing minute of our living universe. So, I mean, not to get trite about it, but this is exactly what uh, Mufasa in The Lion King did for Simba. You know, you take him up on top of the, the tallest place, you can see as far away as you can see. Go somewhere where you can really look at a long distance to the horizon. Go hike up a mountain or whatever you have. I think you're in San Francisco, right? You know, maybe go up to Golden Gate Park or or, uh, hike up Diablo and just look down over everything and sit there with your five-year-old and just marvel at how small and inconsequential everything seems from so far away. And talk about the fact that people are having fights, they're getting married, they're having babies, you know, all of this stuff is going on down there and it's just so small and so far away. And you know, I think the real danger with death is that is the trauma, you know, the the sudden change from having someone in your life that you no longer have and your brain has Adapted. Uh, Lawrence Gonzalez and I talked about this in Complexity Podcast episode 37, where he was talking about in his book Surviving Survival, how people, you know, how he thinks hauntings happen neuroscientifically speaking. He, you know, that we develop these elaborate models of other people in our minds and then someone dies, but the model in your mind is still there. You know, your brain is still got a map of this other person that is literally alive and inside of you and has, you know, is continuous with the, the architecture of your sensation and your cognition. And, and so of course, someone that you've lived with for 20, 30, 50 years, when they die, you're going to feel their presence for the rest of your life. Of course you are because you're, a mold made from impressions taken by every relationship that you ever had. And that, you know, the more often you press yourself against another person, the more likely a high fidelity image of that person is to exist within you. So we carry each other around in this way. And, you know, there's a silver lining in there, right? which is that you can talk about a secular afterlife in this kind of framing you know you can talk about the fact that even now as we are you know concerned about the possibility that the digital exhaust we leave behind us may eventually be reconstituted into some sort of uh, ai reincarnation some weird simulacrum or clone. You know, JF Martell and I talked about this in episode seventy-one. I mean, it's it's it, we've talked about it a lot on the show. Actually, the future acts like you. Part seven of my book up on Medium goes into this in in some detail. But what that really means is that you know the self is not bound in the way that we normally think of it. That that you, in some sense, have a core, but you also have this periphery you know the hinterlands of yourself all of the photographs of you that trigger emotional reactions and the people that knew you and in you know light up the neural networks in their brains and and so your image your identity in some sense uh, persists there are ways in which i was just having this thought the other day that I could be asleep and someone's watching a video of me talking and you gets into this territory very quickly, it edges into the question of shared dreaming and what happens when, as I'm sure many listeners have had this experience of appearing in other people's dreams in ways that seem very, very plausible, very compelling and convincing. And, Oh yeah, I totally would have been there with you doing that thing. and, where was I when this was happening? I don't know. I was asleep. Was I actually in your dream? I don't know that the modern self can answer questions like this. I mean, I, I can say pretty firmly that it can't. But I think that if we take a you know a post human kind of distributed network based approach to this and you know we recognize ourselves as i am fond of saying as the still point at the intersection of colliding infinities a moire an interference pattern of forces of landscape and material agencies each of us is a song book and you know we don't even know the songs for the most part epigenetic memories and cultural patterns that aren't stored in the DNA, but in our built environments and our rituals and habits. So like, where is the person? And, uh, you know, when you get into this question of death, it really gets blurry very, very fast. And I think growing up, if I had had someone explain this to me in this way as a five-year-old, gosh, I think that would have been probably really immensely useful. I think I, I could have grown up sort of secure in the mysterious depths of these kinds of questions and saved myself a a whole lot of grief, you know, scratching my head about these things in my questing adolescence, you know? So I guess what I'm saying is if you really want your kid to understand and make peace with death and, then I think that transformation is a good way to frame it and that uh, there are some key techniques to uh, discussing, exfoliating the, the mystery of transformation, some of which I've already discussed. If you have an unusually mindful child, you might try an experiment where you ask them to stand on their tiptoes, really you know, perched, poised anticipatory body posture and, and have a conversation with them like that and then have them lie down on their back and relax and ask the same questions, duplicate the conversation and see how it changes just because the posture changes. I mean, this was something that frankly LSD showed me in 2007, which is, you know, the importance of the psychosoma that we talked about this with uh, Norman Katz, hypnotherapist, uh, a.k.a. Dr. Blue in episode 124, I believe. He's always going on about how people think that the mind leads the body, but in reality, it's often the body leads the mind, which is why there's a therapist's couch in the first place. You want to be in a receptive, vulnerable position for this kind of reflective inquiry. So, I don't know. I mean, maybe the correct answer is watch the 1991 adams family movie with your kid in which death is completely celebrated i mean maybe this is really only a problem for certain demographics it seems like a lot of the catholic world has reconciled this obviously you know mexico has dia de los muertos and i think you know maybe the adams family movie was my Dia de los Muertos as a kid. You know, it's it's what allowed me to sort of make peace with the fact that death is a friend. Death is where we come from, and it's not just where we're headed. And again, to bring up the mystery of sleep, my friend David Titterington, who was a huge inspiration to me in college and a dear friend, without whom I'm sure none of this would even be happening. David is... Fond of reminding me that you die every night when you go to sleep and you're reborn every night when you wake up in the morning. You know, your consciousness extinguishes like a candle and then reappears. And, you know, is are you afraid to go to sleep? Well, I mean, I mean maybe if you're five, you are. But then again, to hook the Peter Pan piece back into this... One of my favorite lines from that story is, to die will be an awfully great adventure. So, if your kid is into playing pretend, as I imagine they are when they're five, well, I mean, when I was five, I pretended to be asleep a whole lot in order to ambush my little brother or to trick my parents, you know, so that they would carry me, just let me be, you know? So I think you could kind of, there's, there's a lot of room to explore there. And lastly, I would just add the one piece I haven't mentioned so far is the piece about metabolism and just the fact that life comes from death. That this, ultimately, the basic mystery of transformation is that creation and destruction are two sides of the same coin, It's just a matter of perspective, uh, you know, a, a matter of relativity, what is being created, what is being destroyed, to whom, you know, it's not this question about the end of the world. It's always like, well, the end of which world, the end of whose world. And, you know, if you're eating a salad, well, that's the end of the world for the lettuce, right? So again, to the great circle of life, actually, I guess there was a kind of glance off of that there, you know, that you can talk about the cosmic balance and and processes and cycles and how you, your, your child, is made out of things that used to be alive and are no longer alive in the form that they were, but are alive in the form of your child. And, you know, it's crazy to think that all of the water in your body was once pissed out of a dinosaur at some point or another, you know, that all of the air that you inhale was at one point someone else's dying breath. So, I mean, these are are facts. And so simply accepting and resting in and doubling down on... The fact that you each of us is ephemeral and constantly undergoing change, I think this is a healthy way to grow up. I think this is a healthy way to to be a kid. you know even as you are just starting to develop a sense of continuity and a you know narrative autobiographical identity, I think it's important to recognize I mean, if I knew at the age ten, what I knew at age 30 about the fallibility of memory, the way that memory retrieval rewrites memory, you know, changes the, the things that we remember. How different a person would I be today? Uh, you know, and how much more prepared a person would I be for the bizarre hyperdimensional palimpsest of our planetary electronic media environment? So, Sean, I hope that Answers your question. (laughs) The last one I'm going to take from Sandra Lamb, who I met through Jordan LeJuan and Rave Nectar. Sandra, very cool person, asks, how can I be creative without any training or experience in traditional creative outlets? Well, I mean, I think your question kind of answers itself frankly which is that all of these creative outlets were themselves once unthinkable Uh, you know actually the smithsonian just acquired that amazing work of neon art that I've been using for the last year or two as the Future Fossils Facebook group cover image, Uh, a quote from Stuart Brand of the Long Now Foundation that says, this moment used to be the unimaginable future. So, you know, were people thinking about VR 100 years ago? Absolutely not. Not in any way that we would qualify it. Somebody had to come up with that we think of painting as a creative act but you know really somebody had to come up with the idea of paint and for a lot of people that is the bellwether of human beings you know the, the first times that we see the use of ochre in caves and in gravesites you know the indication that humans were taking pigment out of the land and applying it as a creative tool. But, you know, that was an idea that somebody had. So, you know, in a way, I think, you know, your question is is strangely inverted from the actual question, which is how do you be creative with the tools that have already been set out for you to be creative that's the real deeper mystery for me, you know, I mean, if I'm sitting on my iPad using Procreate and this amazing, beautiful art app has been designed with you know these brushes and, and these techniques, all of these design affordances are constraining my creativity in a way that I would have to find a way to break to make something truly novel. I wrote a piece about this many, many years ago. I'll link to this in the show notes also called The Exaptation of the Guitar. So evolutionary biologists Stephen Jay Gould and Elizabeth Verba coined this term exaptation to talk about an evolutionary adaptation that finds new meaning and function in a different context. A, a really classic example would be the leg, which I wrote about in uh, the future is exapted and remixed. I'll link to that in the show notes as well. The leg was not invented to walk on land, right? Evolution doesn't forecast in that way. It was an innovation that emerged at the boundary of interoperability between a genetic mutation that fortified the bony fins of fish in an environment where they were being cast about by extraordinary tidal forces, you know the moon and its influence on the waters of planet Earth were much greater once upon a time. So these lobe finned fish were just being dashed about by waves, and of course, you know you want something a little sturdier. You want to be able to grab, grip the rocks and hold on and. Of course, once you can grip something, then you can maneuver it, and you know that it becomes a fulcrum. It becomes leverage. It becomes this thing where, again, because of the cyclicity of this, the, the wet and dry cycles of these extraordinary tides, you're walking on land to get back into the water. And there's plenty of examples of this. I mean, this is actually one of the things that has proven to be so perennially useful that... There are numerous groups of fish that have evolved some form of leg, some form of lung. But the point with acceptations is it's about the remix, about taking something into a new context where a new purpose can be discovered. So that is basically the fundamental and elementary definition of creativity as far as I am concerned. So, the whole thing with creativity and training and experience is that, you know, if you think about like a machine learning algorithm, again, you are just conditioning that neural network to the training data. I mean, you're just carving in a story of the world as it was. It's a statement of the past. You know, all of our expectations are really, in a weird way, kind of just the uh, reciprocal or the, the inverse or the, the, the impression made by memory. So to do something truly creative, to do something truly novel means to shake out of that. And as we were discussing just in this last episode, again, with Michael Phillip, the, the role of noise of jostling yourself out of the little cupola of the known and into an unfamiliar terrain be it through the moon's pull on the sea or be it through financial forces that cause people to leave their homes and quest outward and to new and strange lands all of these ways that the the vagaries of life remix us you know cast us about that is the raw material of creativity As an aside, this is why the matter of cultural appropriation in creativity is is so tricky and central, right? Because, I mean, perhaps this is an absurd argument, but, uh, you know, even to look at a rock and think, oh, I can chip that and make that into a hand axe. Well, if the rocks are inspirited, which they were to our Paleolithic ancestors, then this raises all kinds of questions about exploitation and consent. I mean, you're transforming something to use it for something else. You're, you're lifting something out of one context, dropping it into a different context where it takes on a new life, a new function. I guess what I'm saying is that you might be better off without training in some respects with, of course, the caveat that, if you don't know what has come before, then in all likelihood, your own creative random walk is going to jiggle you into doing precisely the same thing that a billion other creative, random, naive agents discovered before you. So it may be new to you, but not necessarily new. And that's the importance of art history to the art student, right? You need to map the island to understand where the beach ends and the ocean begins. And that gets us to another kind of critical look at this question, which is, can any of us truly be creative? I mean, you know, we talk a lot about reinventing the wheel, but, you know, the wheel... (laughs) The wheel existed billions of years ago in the machinery of complex cells. You know, Lynn Margulis's argument for the endosymbiotic origin of the nucleated cell tells a story of these unicellular spirochetes, these free swimming bacteria that are now the spinning cilia and flagella and possibly also the microtubules within. Animal cells, and even below that level, at the the level of the organic machinery of even bacteria, there are wheels set up inside the uh, molecular pumps of our anatomy. And so, the, the point with all of that is just that there are strong convergent physical constraints on the shape that things take. And nature finds these same solutions over and over and over again. So, you know, what seems like a flash of insight, or a, you know, a genius novelty in one setting almost certainly has precedent in some other setting. And, it, you know, it's just a matter of how long it'll take for history to set the record straight. So, Maybe it's worth asking yourself, why do you value creativity? And what are you even talking about when you talk about creativity? Because I know that Rave Nectar, you know, the company where I was putting my art on clothing, that uh, that's how I met you, works with all of these different artists. And they're, frankly, just chewing up What they've experienced over their life, processing it, remixing it, and presenting it in a way that is more or less recognizable to everyone else. And if it's totally unrecognizable to anyone else, oddly, if something is truly novel, then you won't even see it. It's completely decontextualized, which is Eric Wargo's point about precognition, that most of us forget all of our future-seeing dreams because they don't make sense to us because we don't have memories of the past that we can attach to them to, that we can anchor this dream I had about people I'm not going to meet for another year in a place I haven't been yet. And the same is true of art. You know, to, to be truly novel, again, the William Irwin Thompson quote, evil is the enunciation of the next level of order. It's like for so- something to be truly creative, it has to be truly other It has to defy your expectations. It has to lie outside of your training data. So, I mean, if you're asking about how do I be creative like all of these artists that are standing on and incrementally building from the works of previous artists in this ongoing cumulative cultural experiment, this unfolding iterative thing, well, I mean, that's a very different question from how do I shock the world with something completely new that will frankly possibly get me killed. I mean, to me, the most obvious ethical gray area of Silicon Valley is in the enshrinement of the value of disruption because (laughs) to disrupt something, you know, in this, uh, language of of austrian economist joseph schumpeter he talks about creative destruction and you know to disrupt something is to break what already exists you know if you want to bring a new industry into the world it means lifting it out of the blood of another industry that you sacrificed to do so and we're back to Question number two about death and transformation. So that's all very lofty and perhaps useless for you. But I think, you know, in in concrete, practical terms, what I can really say is that there's a great quote that you are only as original as the obscurity of your sources. It gets back to this issue of being a stranger. If you want to be creative, you need to ask yourself, creative to whom? and then draw in novelty from outside of that circumscribed context. You know, if this means I need a new idea at work, then, you know, maybe you should take the afternoon off and go for a walk. Volumes have been written on the value of showers, sleep, and strolling to the creative process. And there's, you know, there's a reason for this. Because you need to get your mind off of the problem and just add noise, shake things up, change your routine. I really think creativity is mostly just about shaking the table. If you're stuck, change your clothing, do your work in a different room, listen to music you ordinarily would never listen to. I mean, again, to anchor this in the last question. And Sean's question, death is just creativity that's forced upon you. And if you want to be a creator, then that also means being a destroyer. So look for the things that you can safely break in your life in order to achieve the generative results that you're looking for. What can't be disrupted? Leave that in place and feel free to experiment with everything else. Anyway, this has been fun. I, I hope that you have enjoyed listening to these. I have enjoyed doing this, and I got several other questions I didn't get to. So I will be doing more of these, I'm sure. Maybe this becomes a Patreon exclusive. I don't know. But I mean, if you like this stuff, then I hope, regardless of whether I continue to release these as free public open access things or just for the subscribers I hope that you'll drop in at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield and and, uh, chip in because these are the kinds of ideas that we're chewing on, yarning with one another together in the Facebook group and in the Discord server all the time, every single day and uh, that's an enormous amount of work and it's great to get an email notification that someone else has opted in and is now chipping a a few bucks a month and believes in the value of this work. So, thanks for listening to this. And if you have questions, you can... Hit me on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or email futurefossilspodcast at com or look in the show notes for an invite to the Discord server and drop your questions in the general channel there. Again, I don't think that I have any kind of conclusive answers here, but I do love playing with these inquiries, unpacking them, turning them around, folding them, unfolding them and then tossing them into the crowd and seeing what other people do with them too. And, you know, so I'm sure other people have different answers to these questions and maybe we can invite you to share your own answers. That would be really cool. I'd love to see what other people come up with in response to these queries. Thanks again. And for real, for real, I'm in the middle of editing it. The very next episode is with Brandon Quittum, economist and, uh, Toby Kears, evolutionary biologist, talking about fungal economies, cryptocurrencies, evolution, and the relationship between the biological and the technological worlds. A very fun, weird, freaky conversation we got into that I'm enjoying listening to again and cannot wait to share with you. So subscribe to the Future Fossils Podcast wherever you're listening to this. I love you. Thanks. Have a great week, and you'll hear from me again here soon.